Kansas legislature is in session and one of the loudest lobbying voices in the capital is the Kansas Chamber. Statewide business organization strives to influence public policy and its political action committee works to influence outcome of elections in the state. The State Chamber of Commerce annually issues a legislative agenda that touches on taxation, healthcare, workforce development, the legal system, government spending, and much, much more. Here to outline the 2022 version of that blueprint are Alan Cobb, President and CEO of the Kansas Chamber, and Eric Stafford, the Principal State House Lobbyist for the Kansas Chamber. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for taking time out of your <clears throat> busy day. You know, you could be doing things in the State House and doing the good, helping the legislators do the good work of government. Mr. Cobb, let's start with a 30-second primer on what the Chamber is and kind of what its mission is for the state. Sure. We're the state's leading business advocacy organization. We have members all over the state, 79 counties, all industries, all sizes. Half our members have 100 employees or less. And we have two, two missions, support business through advocacy, defend the free enterprise system, and then celebrate, and I guess I'd call it soft advocacy, promoting some of the good things that are happening across the state with our Kansas businesses. Mm -hmm. All right, and then very good summary. And then how about a summary, just because this will help us with the context of some of your, the Chamber's other recommendations about, if you're talking to an East Coast fast, fat catter about the Kansas economy, what would be your brief assessment of it? say we're doing okay. Uh, we're always lagging the country just a little bit in GDP growth. Some of the challenges we have are the same in every, every state to different degrees, quality and quantity of workforce, supply chain issues. Inflation is becoming a, a larger and larger issue as it impacts prices of products, but also wages. And how do you keep, keep good employees? But I'd say generally we're, we're in we're in okay shape, and I think we have been for a while. The question is, is okay good enough, and how do you jump start it to get maybe in the top top 10, top 15 of, of states? We're, we're kind of generally hovering around the middle or, or sometimes the bottom third in, in economic growth. Mr. Stafford, I think this the chamber would believe that the, the tax policy arena is one place where progress could be made uh, on, on the economy. So. The chamber's general recommendation is for the state to use part of the 2.9 billion surplus, that's with a B, uh, on slashing overall tax rates. So are we talking income, sales, and property, or just one or two of those? I, I think uh, all of the above should be on the table for consideration from the legislature. Um, yeah, we, we have record receipts. Uh, I sat on a call from uh, my peers across the country uh, a few weeks ago, and it was uh, uh, through the Tax Foundation, but it was a 50-state update in 60 minutes. So everybody had a very short time to give a brief update on what's happening in their state. Every single state that spoke said the exact same thing. We have record receipts coming in. So this is all, I think, driven from the federal action. Uh, so what's happening is not unique to Kansas. So uh, yes, uh, use, use those dollars um, efficiently and uh, responsibly, but yeah, let's look at some, some uh, tax revenue uh, adjustments that could be on the table. And a second provision, I know if you cut, say, the sales tax rate, that would be ongoing and, and cost the state, we'll say, revenue on an ongoing basis, but I think uh, in, in terms, are there tax policy decisions that can be made, could, could be considered one-time expenditures? Because if you have this surplus, and you bake in tax cuts, those are going to stay with us next year, the year after that, the year after that, the year after that. Could cause revenue problems eight years from now. But if you did a one-time tax thing, might that be more beneficial just in the long term? Well, I think if you're looking at a one-time tax thing, um, 
you know, if it, focusing on, say, rate reduction, personal income tax rate reduction, for example. Um, I think there was a bill that was introduced, uh, Senate Bill 327 or 328, that was a single rate, uh, roughly costs $500 million the first year, 300 and some million on an ongoing basis. From there, uh, what we've uh, shared with some legislators, look at what North Carolina did back in 2013, right after uh, the tax cuts here in Kansas. Their approach was taking benchmarks of growth of state receipts to then buy down uh, rates. So you're not establishing what the lower rates will be first. You're reaching the benchmarks of growth in government, allowing growth in state tax receipts. And then once you reach those benchmarks, then you're seeing you know, quarter point reductions or whatnot in the rates. So that would be incremental, and you wouldn't jump off a cliff, and that would be good. Mr. Cobb, do you think that that sounds like a reasonable strategy. The governor, for example, proposed just a big cash rebate to 1.2 million Kansans, the, the taxpayers, people that filed tax returns, and it was like essentially $450 million, like here you go, thanks for being a good Kansan. That a reasonable idea of a one-time expenditure that deals with tax policy? Well, it probably won't have much of an impact on the economy. You need to lower, lower rates. And what North Carolina did was you avoid the cliff. Certainly makes some sense. But if you look at our rates compared to particularly our region, uh, corporate income tax rate is high. The personal income tax rates are high. Sales tax rates are high. We're seventh or eighth in the country in total state and local sales tax. So there's still a competitive issue just on rates. The property so, taxes, I think I was listening to a legislative briefing, and they said property tax rates are really the ones that are out of step with, with other states around here. They are. Yeah. They are. It does. It, property taxes get a little more difficult to compare state to state because it depends on what's the assessed rate. A lot of the appraisals are locally driven. And what's a commercial property in Wichita versus Omaha? And is it apples to apples? So it's a little more difficult. But yeah, I think when you look at groups like uh, Council State Taxation's Tax Foundation on any of these objective measures, Kansas is, is generally out of step with our, our competitor states. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that on all those taxes, overall, Kansas was sort of in the middle of the pack in terms of states and in general taxation. Uh, yeah, um, I would say I think it's um, a good time to mention the, the tax foundation. We were 34th overall last year in our overall business tax climate and with the tax policy that passed last year between property taxes, income tax, corporate income tax reform. Um, we have moved to 24th overall, which was the biggest jump out of any state in the country. So we mm -hmm. improved 10 spots. Still some work to go. On the property tax side, the state only receives a very, very small portion of property tax revenue. I mean, most of that is driven from the local level. So it's the policies that can be set at the state level. But ultimately, it's, it's property taxes are driven by local government through valuation increases. There are some states that say, okay, you cannot... If valuations increase, the mill levy automatically has to be reduced, and that is not what right. That's we have the hidden the uh, property tax increase Correct. when the valuation increases, even though the mill rate doesn't change, you pay more taxes. Yeah. Yeah, but our our commercial industrial property tax burden, uh, rural commercial and industrial property tax burden, is highest in the nation, uh, according to the Lincoln Institute. Mr. Cobb, you mentioned workforce development concerns about the labor force. I think one of your recommendations was a new tax credit for employers who participate in a, an apprenticeship program. Can you explain that? Yeah, the registered apprenticeships, Kansas is lags way behind. I think we're ranked 46, 47, 48. And it's a, it's a program in which a, a skilled worker gets hired by a company and you go through a training process, process over, depends on the time frame, a year or two years. 
And for whatever reason, Kansas has been way behind. There have been a couple of folks hired by the Department of Commerce, very sharp folks. Sean Atwater is one of those and is beginning to drive change and getting more folks to that through that process. It can be a little cumbersome, which means you need Kansas Department of Commerce staff to help jump through basically some requirements from the federal government. So uh, our goals should be to get to the median, maybe the top 10, 15. One of the, the I, I guess I'd call it an excuse. Well, Kansas is not, it's, it's labor-driven, organized labor-driven, and so Kansas is not a big state with organized labor. However, when you look at states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Nebraska, they're way ahead of us, and they don't have a large organized labor community. Organized labor is a, definitely a key part of this, but it doesn't have to be just for organized organized labor. And it also, when I talk about skills, we can think about the, the I guess, the generic traditional CNC operators, skilled machinists, but there are registered apprenticeships being created for tech and IT and computer science, which is Kansas is way behind in that area too. So there's certainly some areas for improvement and growth. We can look to other states what they've done and improve what they've done and maybe not replicate some of the things that they that didn't I think work. Kansas' investment in technical education in students has greatly improved over the years. And I think that goes back to when Brownback was governor. Yeah, yeah so Bill one thing certainly that everybody agrees uh, was a correct path to go. Mr. Stafford, the constitutional amendment that says the judicial system has no say in K-12 funding, um, what do you think about that? Why, why, why shouldn't the Supreme Court evaluate these kind of things? Well, I think that the issue that's been um, debated is the legislature has the authority to appropriate. And when the court says that you need to appropriate X amount uh, in order to meet their definitions of, of uh, adequate and equitable. Suitable, adequate. Uh, suitable, yeah, suitable, adequate, equitable. Words. Uh, I think that's been the division there. Um, from, right, but from I think what you're getting at is the legislature decides these things, votes on them, the governor signs a bill or doesn't, then the Supreme Court evaluates the constitutionality of that. I think what you're suggesting is the Supremes overcrossed a line by saying, oh, that m amount of money might not be enough, or that is. <clears throat> and so what they should do is just say, that's unconstitutional and not say anything else. But once you wade into dollar amounts, that's crossing into uh, the appropriations territory of the legislature? I think that's been the argument that's been made, yeah. yeah. So. And, and I totally get that. I think what some legislators would like is that no constitutional review from the Supreme Court, which would be a sidestepping of, of, of our legal system. Um, one of you could explain, one of your recommendations was to require disclosure of third-party financing of lawsuits. I don't know what that is. <laughs> sure. Glad you, glad you brought that up. So, that is a priority for us this year. Do you, Mr. Stafford, do you want to answer? Yeah. So basically, uh, Senate Bill 152, I uh, hope to have a hearing on that here in the next few weeks. Uh, there are hedge funds that operate to finance litigation in our country, and they make wow. money off litigation. Um, and all we're asking is that it be disclosed to the defense that there is a third party to the case that has a financial interest in the case. We're not saying you can't. Uh, we just are asking that that uh, defense be made aware. Does that happen in Kansas? Uh, I don't. Ha I don't know if there's specific. Maybe examples this is in a Kansas preventive yet. step. It, it could happen okay. in Kansas. Yes, um, but uh, we had a call with their industry association. Um, they likened their their actions to a bank giving a loan to a business um, financing. Uh, but banks, other than the interest of the loan and getting paid back on the loan, don't have a financial interest. Um, 
to profit from the success of litigation. It sounds like ambulance chasing. Mr. Cobb, one of your other recommendations in this arena was a restoration of caps on non-economic damages uh, in legal cases. Uh, please explain. Yeah, well, a case, gosh, two or three years ago made its way through the Kansas Supreme Court. The Kansas Supreme Court ruled that, uh, based on, I think, some flawed legal theories, that the caps on non-economic damages are unconstitutional. So, therefore, in Kansas, we do not have any. Now, Kansas is not the most litigious state, so it takes a while for the cases to make their way through. There was just a ruling a week ago in a Wichita medical malpractice case that had an impact here. So you've got a couple of wrinkles. Does it apply to medical malpractice caps? It's mm -hmm. unclear. Supreme Court justices have been inconsistent on whether it applies. And it hasn't had an impact on insurance rates yet because we have not had those big cases. But it's not unusual to have caps on non-economic non damages and restoring those, which unfortunately would probably take a constitutional limit. Not crystal clear. Uh, Justice Stiegel had an interesting um, opinion in his, I think, I don't know if it's concurring or dissent, that kind of laid out a pathway for possibly the legislature to impose some some caps. It has to do with jury instructions, et cetera, which gets kind of weedy. But mm -hmm. that's certainly a competitive issue for the state. Institute for Legal Reform ranks liability systems in, in the states, and we were top 10, and now we're 35th, 34th, something like that. Yeah. That's certainly an economic development issue, both for current and future Employers, Mr. Stafford, don't, aren't workers' compensation benefits in Kansas pretty lousy? I mean, if you get your right hand cut off tomorrow, uh, lobbying on behalf of the chamber and file workers' comp, I don't, I don't think your lifetime benefits are going to be very impressive. The the lifetime benefits, uh, I forget what the cap is, hundred and fifty-five thousand dollars or so, um, and those kick in based on whether you're allowed to continue to perform the work or not that you were doing prior so to. You could become a lefty. I am a lefty. So oh, okay. <laughs> Hopefully it's my right hand that I lose. So, uh, no, uh, in all seriousness, no. I mean, I we had significant work comp reforms back in 2011 um, that, that passed the legislature. That was a product of agreement. Um, to our knowledge, it's the only time workers' compensation legislation passed the legislature unanimously. That was an agreement mm -hmm. between business and labor. Um, there's always going to be the push and pull between uh, both sides on the work comp system. Um, but we believe that we have a fair system that, that awards individuals for injuries truly suffered while on the job. And, uh, again, that was a, a product. Yeah, that I we think one of the controversies on. about that on the job is that there's questions about COVID and medical professionals working in hospitals have contracted COVID, maybe become long haulers and are making worker comp, comp claim. But the question is, yeah, the question yeah. is, did they get COVID in the hospital or at the grocery store? And that's tricky business. It is. It's it's uh, impossible to tell. It just talking yesterday with some folks, uh, we uh, were able to pass and extend to March of this year uh, COVID liability protections for the business community, um, assuming that they are you know taking the necessary steps to provide a safe environment for their employees and customers. Mm -hmm. uh, then then they experience liability protections. But it's just kind of a new era that you know we haven't seen litigation yet. But we don't want folks when this, especially when this was going starting early on in mm -hmm. 2020 people to be sued for, you know, exposure to a virus, you know, the, I'm not liking it to the flu, but in the same mindset of an argument, you know, were we getting sued for somebody who got the flu at our facilities prior to, right. so, right. Um, but, uh, yeah. All right, Mr. Cobb, let's go to government efficiency. A couple questions there. Uh, you oppose government competition with the private sector. 
And the one specific example I can remember that is there's this uh, Wichita Fitness Club Empire. Uh, uh, the people with there have tried to uh, private private company tried to get a tax break in in the state house because they don't like competing against uh, the nonprofits that offer exercise opportunities. So uh, it's the only example I could think of. Are, are there others? There are, and there there are. Uh, that's not just a Wichita issue. That's the most the most prominent. And interestingly enough, there was a post audit report yesterday mm-hmm. that was not inconclusive because they need need more data. But there's some, uh, yeah. So it's not that's not the only one. That's probably the most prominent because of local governments creating fitness centers that compete with the local with uh, I'm sorry private private sector. But it's uh, it's it's a general issue, general principle that if if there's if the marketplace cannot provide a fitness center in a particular town, yeah, there's nothing wrong with. With the tax, but in that case, there is an example. The YWCA has existed for a hundred years, and Genesis Fitness Clubs comes along, you know, ten years ago, and uh, apparently makes a profit, makes money, but now is complaining about the hundred-year, the century-long services of the Y. I, I, I just don't. If you, if you were there first, I don't see what, what government has to do in trying to protect that private. Well, it's what, what are you providing something that's part of your mission? And as example, Envision is a nonprofit in Wichita that makes products, but the, in the process of making products, they're training people with, that are visually disabled to have a successful and a productive life, which is part of their mission, which is, I think, a, a little different. But yeah, the, the wise are, are popular entities, kind of a, kind of a tough one to, to fight. And Eric sounded like you had Mr. Stafford, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a real good example. The, the Department of Corrections trains inmates um, through skilled labor of, of you know, carpentry and, and construction um, in the process of making uh, manufactured homes. Uh, they would like to start selling those products, which is in direct conflict with the manufactured housing industry, uh, mm-hmm. the private industry in okay. the state. Um, and uh, so there, there have been bills in the past to expand that program for Department of Corrections that we've opposed because, you know, training is one thing, but direct competition with, with an industry is another. I get it, yeah. Also, you suggested a BRAC system, and that's a that BRAC stand, related to the military base closure commission of years past to maybe realign government agencies and functions? Somebody? Yeah, I think it's just overall, are, are we operating as a state as efficiently as we can? Uh, and if not, how can we do it better? And how can we realign? I think you've seen both under Governor uh, Brownback and Governor Kelly, you've seen some realignment of state agencies. I think part of their goals is to deliver those services a bit more efficiently, um, whether it's wildlife parks and tourism or DCF, um, you know, KDAD. So there's been there's been um, efforts there, but it's it's how can we deliver the services to our citizens in the most efficient manner possible? Mr. Cobb, another recommendation had to do with energy about picking winners and losers among energy sources. And I guess that means we should be fair to equally fair in terms of tax breaks and incentives, whatever, with coal, wind, gas, and nuclear? Correct. You want them on an equal footing? Uh, If possible. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only so much the state can do with nuclear, for example, where it's so federally regulated. But the repeal of the RPS, which is, gosh, I don't know, 10 10 years ago, that's an example that was picking winners or losers. It's like, no, we're going to require utilities to have a certain type of uh, energy produced from their portfolio. I think the and I think the KCC testified on this earlier this week. You got to make sure there's the right mix that uh, in the in 
certain times in the winter or Europe had a problem over the summer with wind not blowing, well, you've got to still have power. Mm -hmm. And so if you've disincentivized coal or fossil fuels or natural gas and then you don't have those resources, we're in a, in a tough spot. Yeah, I think for now, you're obviously going to have to retain coal and, and gas uh, energy supply. But I, I just wonder about the chamber. You know, the, the, one of the huge growth businesses in Kansas is the wind turbine industry. And so I just thought maybe you would be supportive of that as well. No, we are supportive. Yeah, okay. we, we testified against a wind siding bill last year. I think it was Senate Bill 279 uh, because it was very heavy heavy regulatory uh, burden on that industry. And um, no matter what the source is, we, we do want a level playing field. Um, but government shouldn't prop up one industry over another, whether it's energy or something else. Transition to healthcare, Mr. Stafford, and that uh, is on point there. Uh, I think the Kansas Chamber testified before the legislature in terms of government vaccination mandates. And, and I interpreted your, your view as yeah, you don't want the federal government mandating that people get vaccinated, <clears throat> but you also don't want to have any kind of government restrictions on whether businesses decide for themselves whether or not to require their employees to be vaccinated. Correct. Correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. That's an interesting position and, and more nuanced than what some people on the right or left well, might have. It's consistent. A mandate's a mandate whether you're telling someone they must do something <laughs> or they cannot. So I feel like it's pretty simply consistent, but I understand mm -hmm. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is consistent. And I understand that, that was sort of my point that, that that's not necessarily in lockstep with uh, some of the people that are hairs on fire about government mandates and COVID. Yeah, there was a bill last year that, that and still around this year, that, that says an employer can't take an adverse reaction against, or adverse action against an employee who refuses any vaccine. So if I, as uh, part of my job, am required to get you know four vaccines for typhoid and meningitis or whatever, because I have to take a trip to Africa for a you know water treatment facility or something, and I say no, well, then who am I supposed to send as an employer um, to make sure that you don't get sick on the job there uh, with the with the bad illness? So, uh, but yes, it's we are uh, consistently against employer mandates. We, we feel that our employers know what's best for them and their employees to uh, manage their safety and health. Mr. Cobb, you guys, the chamber did a survey. Right? Help me understand what people said about your annual survey on that point. Do you think most businesses want to make the decision themselves? Correct. Okay. And I think Eric's got the yeah. hard data, or we can get it too. It was, it I was think consistent. it was over 50 50% 50 felt that 57%, maybe something Stay like that, out. felt just we are best Let to us decide. decide. Yeah. yeah, I would think that would be the general sense of things. Another issue on healthcare was to eliminate restrictions on medical professionals and performing duties outside their scope of practice or training. And I actually think Governor. Outside or inside? You, you, you. Explain explain what you want within the you scope of practice. Better. Within the scope of practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so do you want you you don't want restrictions, government restrictions on what those people do, or you are supportive of restrictions? The, the health the safety regulations requirements need to be matched with the the public safety requirements, and making sure folks can practice to the extent of their training, and. The easiest issue, it gets a little complicated with some, but independent practice for nurse practitioners. Right now, the state requires a collaboration agreement, which is not defined with, with phys a physician. With or physician. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we think that's overly burdensome. And I don't know. I there's see. 23, 24, 25 states that do not have that requirement. And uh, there's a, a broad coalition that supports 
eliminating that collaboration. Okay, I understand what you mean. I think Governor Kelly in the last week or so responded to the staffing shortages at hospitals because of COVID for temporarily suspending some of those rules to allow uh, certain types of hospital employees to do something that maybe a certain nurse was doing yesterday so those nurses could could move on to more sophisticated care. It's consistent with other occupations, just lowering the burdens, making sure they're not. It's not about, is it about protecting the public or protecting a a competitive uh, occupation? What happened during COVID, a lot of those restrictions were were lifted. Kansas a couple years ago passed reciprocity for nurses. Last year, gosh, I lose track of time. Last year, overall reciprocity for occupation, occupational licenses. And I, I saw the Department of Education uh, lifted some requirements on substitute teachers. All of those things are are good. Now we're trusting the regulatory bodies that still the things are in place. We're still going to have qualified people teaching, being a substitute or being a primary care provider. But it's uh, make sure that it's it's about public safety and health for health. It's health outcomes. It's pretty easy easy measurements to determine what what's best. Mr. Yeah, Stafford, to the, to the occupational licensing front, you know, a lot of the opposition on on that bill came from the licensing boards that that you know we're going to have all these people coming into the state. Which you know, one, if we do, that means we're growing, and that's a really good thing. Uh, but two, it was kind of a sky is falling. Uh, up uh, outlook that you know these people are going to come in that aren't going to be up to the same standards of Kansas and but that's why it, those, that language was drafted into the bill to ensure that they were to the same level and if they weren't then get to the education accomplished and finished that would get them to mm-hmm. the same level as as required in the state of Kansas but overall as Alan said yeah eliminating unnecessary burdens that prevent people from fully practicing within the scope of their training um, no matter what profession okay All right. There's another element to the annual recommendations of the legislature. Uh, They deal with retail businesses and manufacturing. It's the tail end of your report. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the retail businesses, uh, uh, several several topics there. One is to just support a lower sales tax. Correct. Mr. Cobb, how does that benefit the the actual retailers? Well, it, 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 it increases the cost of a product. So it could just another incentive for people to come shop there and maybe sure. spend a few extra dollars. Yeah, and there, there, okay. there's quite a bit of data out there. You increase the sales tax, and sometimes the sales tax revenue might even drop because you know, here in Topeka, there's places that are 11%. That becomes an impediment on particularly big-ticket items like, like cars when you're adding 10 11%. Or, yeah, if, you're, or if you're in a border community. Um, you know, if, you're, if you're in Johnson or Wyandotte, Miami County is on the border, and you can, you can save – percent and a half, two percent to drive across the border to Missouri to buy something, whether it's sales tax, cigarette tax, alcohol taxes, uh, it's people will shop cross borders um, and and just to save money. All right. Another one was to oppose taxes on sugary beverages. And I guess that's just like soft drinks, like a special tax. Uh, on. I think that's kind of a legacy thing where I I'm thinking is 10, 11, 12 years ago where legislators one of the challenges uh they don't always handle the budget very well so they just want to increase revenues and oh, so, so i think somebody that's, was hunting oh there cash. it was a proposal cash. There, yeah i yeah. know there was yeah i just didn't know if it was surfacing again no uh, so why well, take a chance and two it, it is important to mention since you brought these these up uh within the kansas chamber we also serve for the state's retail council as well as the state's manufacturing council so manufacturing is our biggest uh 
I don't know what it's the biggest percent of our members. Yeah, biggest, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, if you right. look at the the type of business okay. that we have, uh, manufacturing is the biggest one. But we're the state affiliate for the National Association of Manufacturing, as well as uh, for the National Retail Federation. So that's wanna, why we have that focus. Got it. Did want to ask you guys about the uh, proposal to uh, or the idea of opposing bans on plastic straws and chemicals. And sure. I, I just my image of that is all those uh, very thin, weird plastic bags that you can get at grocery stores. Uh, they, I, th- I think the average length of usage of them is like 18 seconds, uh, <laughs> however long it takes for you to throw your stuff in the car. Uh, and so then they just drift around and then never deteriorate. I don't know. So, look in our pantry and you'll find hundreds of them. <laughs> right. And I think the number one use for those bags after you get your groceries in the house is to go pick up dog poo. You know, I think that's it. So they're groceries and dog poo. Bags. Are you advocating that we not pick it up? I think you should, but maybe there's other ways. Uh, you know, I just think, you know, getting getting these particular bags out of the environment is probably a good idea, but you guys are opposed to that. Well, it's it's about, the, and Eric will touch on it more, about having, you got 600 cities in Kansas, 105 counties, 600 cities with 600 different rules on bags or plastic straws or paper straws. And a lot of those, those grocery bags, at least where I shop, they're recyclable. I put them in the recycle bin. Yeah, Are yeah it's, it's yeah, uniform. Okay. It's uniform standards. It's it's the same. You know, 2013 we passed a bill dealing with minimum wage to ensure that there's uniform application of the state or federal minimum wage. That you don't have cities or counties adopting different standards that put one business at but a. But you could make a recommendation for a uniform policy of no bags, but you make a philosophical position of let's keep bags. Well, let let the market decide what type of bag the consumer wants <laughs> okay. to utilize. All right. Yeah. All right, just uh, Mr. Cobb, do you want to look at the uh, the uh, manufacturing part of your report and just kind of summarize some of the recommendations there that um, that the manufacturers that you represent uh, suggested uh, policy suggestions that they made? Uh, it's been it's primarily workforce uh, and the registered apprenticeships, making sure that educational resources are focused on high wage, high demand jobs. In critical needs, uh, sometimes that doesn't always the high wage, high demand doesn't always fit. But it's primarily primarily workforce. Um, computer uh, science might be one to mention. Yeah, computer science we're we're behind in in a whole bunch of different national rankings. As computer science is taught in the K twelve level, I know the state board is is aware of it, and they've made some movements. Last year, they passed eight to two to allow school districts to allow computer science to be a elective instead of for in, in replacement of math and in science so that's that's a good thing i think just aligning our resources i think we're headed in the right direction this is a challenge for every state where you've got all kinds of different silos or piles of jello from federally funded programs to state funded programs to regions to community colleges to tech colleges and trying to get a better alignment and there's a governor's education council advantage kansas coordinating council uh, work-based learning getting more kids and in high school to have a work experience that 10 years ago, that wasn't an issue, but because of school activities, lots of things, there are some issues there. There's an issue about unpaid internships and liability mm-hmm. that we're going to, I'm pretty That's confident. still out there. Yeah. We'll get that. We'll get that. Because you know, out. like a high school student could work uh, at somebody's woodworking shop as, as an apprentice on furniture making 
but that those are dangerous places. And, and so the liability of that inhibits the, the expansion of those kind of programs, right? It does. And the bigger issue, though, is for unpaid because the paid is generally going to be paid by workers' comp. And so it's the unpaid internships that might be job shadowing. It's like, I'm sorry, we'd love to have the student come in, but uh, our insurance won't cover it. So we're working with insurance companies, the school board association, to come up mm. with some language that other states have done that will we'll, uh, address that. And a lot of our other manufacturing priorities are not unlike every other business issue, whether it's regulatory reform, increased access to health care like APRNs, uh, regulatory reform, tax burden, mm-hmm. et cetera. So there's, right. there's some general consistency. So similarities. And, well, regulatory yeah. reform is a good one to, to mention too. Um, Senate Bill 34 that would sunset all state regs every five years. That had some concern from industry that if they sunset and don't get renewed, we'd all ultimately be pulled in under a federal um, agency. So what we are currently working on a revision to that bill that would require a periodic review, but then pair with that the ability for the state agency to fast track repeal uh, any outdated or unused regulations hmm. that they no longer need. Um, but then also support a constitutional amendment that was introduced last year that gives the legislature back the authority to uh, oversee and you know, turn down or vote down. Uh, it sounds a terrible idea if you if you're a legislature. Who wants to look at all the minutia of all those rules <laughs> and regs? You know, you want to sleep through something. Well, That's I it. think it, it it's a very burdensome task. Kansas, thankfully, um, is is one of the better regulated states, but we still have you know seventy three thousand regulations on the books. Um, but wow. ulti- who counted them? Uh, the Mercatus Center, uh, actually, oh believe it or God. not. But but ultimately, it, it, Republican or Democrat, a heavy regulatory administrative state that that issues policy through rules and regs is not good. You see it abused at the federal level, both Republican and Democrat presidents. Sure. Uh, we have thankfully had uh, avoid, largely avoided that at the state level, but we don't want to get to that position where regulations become the workaround from the legislature. There's got to be some really wacky stuff in the 73,000 uh, regulations, some that just apply to like wooden wagons and stuff like that. <laughs> right. We're going to have to stop there. I want to thank you guys for coming yeah, in and talking about the 22 22- version of the Kansas Chamber's agenda. Alan Cobb, president and CEO of the Kansas Chamber, and Eric Stafford, uh, uh, an important statehouse lobbyist for the Kansas Chamber. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it.